Welcome to another episode of the Cool Tools Show and Tell. Our special guest this week is Chris Zukowski. Hey, Chris, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and watchers? Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you so much, Kevin, for having me. My name is Chris Zukowski. I am a game marketer. So what I do is I help small individual developers who make their own video games sell them on the internet, mostly PC games, but it's a weird marketplace. And the funny thing is nobody needs a video game, so it's kind of hard to market it. Uh, and so it's a weird industry and I teach people how to manage it, how to market their games. So I run the site, it's called howtomarketagame.com. I run a weekly uh, blog that I post to every week and uh, it's a lot of fun stuff that you learn about marketing games. So that's my, uh, that's my specialty and I'm excited to show some tools to you. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, we welcome that. Um, We'll have a chance to maybe talk more about games at the end. So let's what's uh, tell us about your first tool. What's what's your one of your favorites? Okay, great. Yeah, let me just start with this one. Um, this is a carabiner pouch, and for the listeners out there who can't see this, it's about the size of a DVD case, I would say, and it's just a pouch with a zipper on the top. It's like a flexible, you know, pouch. I can't describe it anymore. But then on the end, there's a carabiner on the end and it's just a pouch. And I think in construction workers use it to hold their stuff, but it's got a very specific purpose that I use it for. So I used to work for IBM and I used to have to travel a lot on airplanes and stuff. And I lost stuff a lot, <laughs> like back to back flights. I lost my glasses and then my AirPods. And I was like, I gotta come up with a new system here. This is out of hand. And so, um, I figured out that the problem with airports and the reason you lose so much stuff traveling is you are constantly taking stuff out of your pockets and putting them on a conveyor belt. You're taking them out, putting, you, you don't want to sit on your wallet when you're on the flight. So you take your wallet, you put it somewhere, you lose track of that stuff. This is where the pouch comes in. So this is the new pouch system that I came up with. So I use the pouch and I have a rule. As soon as I get like in the taxi cab or out my front door on the way to the flight, new rule. Nothing goes in my pockets. I empty my pockets and I put everything in the magic pouch, okay? And then the carabiner clips. And I'm going to do a demo. I'm going to have to step away to show how this goes on. And I'm going to do a little demo for you, Kevin, and I won't talk. I'll just show. Right, right. And for the folks listening, I clip it on my belt loop. And so what happens right. is... Yeah, you're standing and you clip it onto your sizable belt. Okay, that yep. it goes right on the front, and I walk through the airport. I go on the flight with it just dangling right on my front belt loop. It has a, it's a so, very fashionable statement there. It is, and here's the thing, Kevin. It's kind of annoying to have it like that because it is constantly bumping. Like every step you take, yeah, it's a thump. Now that's a bug and a feature because if I feel that, that reminds me I have everything I need. Yeah. Everything's right there, <laughs> and here's the solution. This is where. Uh -huh. Going into pouch mode, which is what yeah. I call it when I get in a taxi cab. When you get to the security line and you got to get your pouch on the conveyor belt, you just unclip it. You right. put it in that little dog bowl, you know, the little dog dish. Yeah. yeah. They send the pouch through the conveyor belt, through the x-ray, and then I just pick up the pouch. And then I put yeah. it right back on the clip on the belt. Seamless. I don't have to like okay. empty every little individual thing out of my pocket. It's all there. Mm -hmm. And then okay. when I sit on my flight, you know, they've got the, never put anything in that, in that front seat pouch. One is full of diseases. Who knows what kind of plague is in there? 
two, you lose stuff in there. So what I do is I just use the carabiner and I clip it right on the edge right. of that pouch, right on the edge of the thing. And then uh -huh. my pouch is right there. It's easy to access. Still, still in pouch mode, nothing in the pockets. Everything's in pouch. Right. So I don't have to worry about my pockets anymore. Everything. Right. I haven't lost anything since I went to pouch mode. So okay. just That's a tip a for frequent travelers. That's a fabulous sell. You sold me. It's really great. It's a great tip. I like the idea of the pouch system. So are there particular pouches that you think are better than uh, above average? Well, I, you know, I, I like this one. It's, I couldn't find it on Amazon actually. I don't know if they went away, but this one's called the dot dot. But uh -huh. uh, I, I found one. I think the one I linked to you is from Dickies. It's just, I mean, it's the stupidest thing. It's a pouch with a clip on the end with a right, carabiner. But, but so the there are different sizes. Right. And they have, you want, ones. you want ones that looks like they're at least clear on one side. Yeah, I like it because I can see, oh, do I still have my phone? Where's my wallet? I can just yeah, glance yeah. real quick. Oh, yeah, it's still in there. I mean, this thing gets loaded up. Cards, everything's in here. And so I got to I gotta yeah, kind of yeah. glance through it. So, yeah. Okay. Um, the pouch system. You heard it here first. The pouch system. Okay, great. Okay, Chris, so what's uh, what's your number two tool? Okay, let's, let's do this one. This one's a fun one. It's not necessarily a tool. It is the Accurite lightning alert detector. And for the audience, it looks like this, which is, it looks like an old alphanumeric pager if you were, yeah, if you lived through the 90s, yeah. where it has like this LCD display that has like two lines of text. It's a little black puck and it's, it's real small. It's got a belt clip. It's a belt buckle. And yeah, it's, it's about two and a half inches square, uh, very retro looking with a kind of a black and white screen and um yeah. and the pouch it is a, it's all lcd text it's not like a nice video screen or anything uh -huh. it is just liquid crystal like old right. school right and this thing's a lightning detector and i live in arizona and every oh. summer we have the monsoons which are a crazy cataclysmic event that happens all like july august september time frame huge lightning storms come through now you turn this thing on and it just listens for lightning and if you know how lightning works, when it strikes, it sounds out an electromagnetic pulse, I think like on the AM wavelength. And this thing, and it makes a very distinctive waveform. And this thing is just listening for that waveform. And every time the lightning strikes, it just counts one up. It just goes, boop. And you'll get a little, there's a little red light actually on the top. Uh -huh. You can't see it because it's not on. Right. But it will flash when the lightning strikes. And then it can tell based on how strong that radio signal is how far away the lightning is. So it'll say lightning detected 10 miles away. And that's all it does. It's like the silliest, stupidest tool. That's it. So one thing I like to do with it is when I know a storm's rolling in, I turn it on and then it just kind of gives you this neat sense of what the storm's doing. You can actually see the, the, the distance coming in like 10 miles away, five miles away, one mile away. And then you know it's like right overhead and then you can feel it kind of rolling away because it'll say five miles, 10 miles, 15. I think it goes to about 20 miles detection. Now, this is for fun. I wouldn't like trust this with my life. I wouldn't say, well, the lightning's 20 miles away. I'm going to go out into the storm and go hiking. I wouldn't trust it that much, but it's just fun to kind of quantify how bad a storm is. And it's a running counter that constantly goes up. So you can turn this on and say, boy, that was a storm with 40 lightning strikes. And you're like, what a storm. And then you're like, man, I thought that was gonna be a great storm, but it was only five hits. What a bad storm that one. So lightning detector from Accurite, a lot of fun. Wow, I've never heard of it. That's pretty cool. I wonder if that'll be built into your phone someday. Everything else seems to go in. 
Um, and that seems to be, should be part of your weather report, should be part of the weather app, right? It would be great. And then they could crowdsource it. Yeah. You know, like everybody submits their lightning yeah, because yeah. I think if you, the, the weather ones, they actually triangulate because they know the pulse if you have three spots and you can sense right. lightning in three spots, you can knit that together and know, oh, the strike was right literally in this neighborhood. Right, you can't right. do that with this. This is just one, one data right, right. point. But if we all networks, free idea out there, free out the idea out there for folks. <laughs> Um, all right, so the the a lightning tracker. Um, so Chris, what's the third uh, cool tool for you? All right, this one is my favorite, most exciting one. I, I when I say that, I'm going to tell you it's a uh, it's a towel. Uh, specifically, it is the Zeppeli Classic Kitchen Towel 15 pack. Let me show you for the for the folks at home who don't know what a towel looks like. <laughs> It's this. It is um, it is white with a blue stripe down oh, yeah, the line. Oh, yeah, your classic restaurant kitchen towel. Yeah. You Funny you mention restaurant towel. So I was reading Anthony Bourdain's book, Kitchen Confidential. I don't know if you've read that one. It's how, how the industry works, like how, how restaurants work. I was reading it, and he had this chapter. He can describe this better than I can. Do you mind if I read from the book? Go ahead. Okay, so this is from Anthony Bourdain's book. I never worked in the restaurant industry, so this is all new to me. Let me, let me read the section on this towel. Working clean, constantly wiping and cleaning is the desirable state of affairs for the conscientious line cook. This explains why side towels are hoarded like gold by good line cooks. When the linen order arrives, the smart cookies fall on them voraciously, slashing stacks, stashing stacks of the valuable objects anywhere they can hide them. One cook I knew would load them onto acoustic tiles above his station. I'm sure years later, though that restaurant has changed hands many times since, future generations of cooks are still finding stashes of fluffy, clean side towels. It's not just clean that you want in a side towel, it's dry. It's nice wiping the rim of a plate with a slightly moist towel, but try grabbing a red hot saute pan handle with a wet towel and you learn fast why a fresh stack of dry towels is a necessity. Some traditional European kitchens still issue two side towels per cook at the beginning of a shift, one to work with while one dries on the oven handle. This strikes me as criminally parsimonious. I like a tall stack, conveniently located over my station in neatly folded, kitty-cornered, easy-to-grab fashion, and I don't ever want to run out. I'll rip through 20 of them in the course of an eight-hour service period. I'm not burning my hand or wiping grease on my nice clean plates because they're too mean to shell out for a few more rented towels. So you can see all the uses for them. And what I do, here's the, here's the key innovation with towels, okay? This, is, this one right here is a Bed Bath & Beyond towel. These are like four to $8 and they're big and they're fancy, they're super soft, but this is the Zappalotti kitchen side towel. It's smaller, it's actually smaller than a big one but you buy them in bulk. You buy them in 20s. This is, these are all my side towels. Uh -huh. And you, you go through them. Like when I cook at dinner at night, this is my side towel stack. I'm gonna put this right next to my cutting board and I'm gonna rip through all these towels. <laughs> and because they only cost less than a dollar a piece, cause you buy them in bulk, like 40, yeah. 20 of them at a time. I don't care about these things. Like if there's a big splat of marinara sauce, I'm wiping it with this towel, like with the with the fancy Bed Bath and Beyond towel. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm like, this is six dollars. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wipe up some red sauce with it. No way. But with the with this towel, I, I do everything with it. Like wipe, get it moist, 
wipe off your cutting board. I will, um, if you've ever made like um, latkes or something, sometimes you have to like squeeze out the, uh, the zucchini. Like if you shred zucchini, mm -hmm. you, put, you put your ball of zucchini shred in the middle, you tighten it, then you do this wringing out motion, gets the moisture out of the zucchini. You can do so much with a side towel. Some people wet it, they'll put it on their board, on the, on the countertop, put their cutting board on top of that, then your cutting board doesn't slip. Right. Everything can be done with your side towels. And then what I do is at the end of my cooking, like that night, I gather them all up, throw them in the washing machine, ready for the next day. One more bonus, you're having a dinner party, you throw <laughs> a side towel over your shoulder like this, it's got this classy blue stripe. And for the audience listening, I look 20% classier. It looks like I know what I'm doing by just having a side towel on my shoulder. And then you can chat it up and then you gotta flip the thing over, pick up a hot pan, you flip it right back on your shoulder. Classy. It just is like, it just is a, it's a dinner party accessory and a cooking tool. So Kevin Kelly, hot, ready for some side towels. Yeah. So, so the, the, the operating term here is side towel. That's the key word, which I didn't know before. Side towels and um, bulk in bulk. It's sort of like, um, it reminds me in the workshop, we have these uh, blue towels that you get. And these and they're the same thing for wiping up grease, cleaning everything. And the idea is you have a lot of them, so you're not cheap and stinchy in using them to clean. So um, yeah, the, the abundance factor is, is, is really important in this side towel business. I don't even care about these side towels. I will destroy these side towels. Right. Not my Bed Bath & Beyond towel though. That thing is just for show. Right. So, um, so Chris, that's wonderful. Um, and I love your performance. Thank you. How about the fourth uh, towel? A towel okay. tool. <laughs> the fourth tool. Okay, my fourth tool. I've actually been using it this whole time. So, you know how like if you watch live streams, on you know YouTube, you watch people like gamers play. Their room looks like a spaceship. It's like pink and pastel and all kinds of stuff. It's actually a really boring white room. What they do is they use LED lights and they shine lights. So this blue background, one moment please, is this. It's this light right here. The official model and make of it is a RGB video light by um, HSI. Refer it. I just found it on Amazon. You can check the link, but it just it glows in every color. Now the size for those viewing at home. What I'm looking at is this thing is battery operated. It's completely wireless. It's a little bit bigger than a deck of cards. I would or say it's, it's like actually it's about the size of a, a new iPhone, basically. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And yeah. one side is just an array of the brightest LED lights you've ever seen, and then the back has a little control panel a little tiny control panel. Oh. It's like a little glowing thing. These are the settings that you can do because you can change. It's just LED lights that can do any color and you can actually change the color. Like you can change the intensity. Let me just shift this. Like I can just dial this and I'm sorry for you on podcast, but I can just change the color right. by turning this dial right. so you, you and I change the mood. Blue, like if I want to make this a, a, a very dark conversation with Kevin Kelly, I'm in red mode for those on the podcast. It's right. a whole new meeting here. And so right. just having a light on in the background changes the mood of the room. And I, the reason I get it is because I uh, do a lot of like uh, Zoom consultations, that sort of thing. I also uh, do free classes. I teach classes. And so I need my, my background of my office to look classier, to look nice. So I use this LED light strip 
it's just basically this, you know, iPhone size thing. And I just move it around to kind of create some neat atmosphere back here. I'm going to go with dark mode, which is my red zone here. So uh -huh. I just made it a little bit more evil in my office just by changing the color, but I can change uh -huh. intensity, brightness, darkness, all that stuff from this light pack. Um, but Kevin Kelly, this is the one last thing that I thought was awesome about this was um, I had to change the light in my closet. I wanted to put in track lighting instead of a, a bulb. So I shut down the power like any good home DIY person and I couldn't see in the closet anymore. I whipped out the old LED light, it's battery backed. So right. I just set it up in my closet and I was shining up so I could install this new lighting rack in the back of my closet. Wouldn't have been able to do that without this uh, nice little LED lights. Right. So, so it's good for art. It's good for work. Right. Only home without it. And it's also, there's another use for it, which is in emergencies, which you hinted to. When the power goes out, um, it's better than, um, you know, a kerosene lamp, for instance. You just drag one of those out, set it to white or whatever you want, and um, you have your instant backup lighting it's it's a wonderful thing so yes highly recommend the, the thing it's about 70 dollars, 60 to uh -huh. 70 it's not i wouldn't say it's cheap but i use it so much and if you've got a room that's like you've been in so many zoom meetings and you're tired of your room and you have a white walls white yeah. walls work best for this you can just change it i had a guy and he was like how do you keep changing your room chris do you just keep repainting i was like no it's just an led light Right. Uh, so if you've got a white room, it works really well. How long will it run on one charge if you had it set at sort of the uh, full blast or medium? I would say it's about three hours. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it depends on how long your Zoom meetings are. But yeah, right. and you can, what you also can do is direct line, plug it into USB. It just has a USB 3, I think, connector mm -hmm. on the on the underside. So yeah. you can just connect that to a wall if you're just like at home and you just want to sure. wall mount it. So. Right. So that's great. Yeah. So um, a little LED color panel that's uh, programmable, so to speak. That's really fantastic. Um, so, Chris, tell us about um, what you're passionate about these days and what you'd like to, to share with our listeners and watchers. Yeah. So I help developers who are just, you know, sometimes it's hobby, sometimes it's their career, but indie developers can make millions of dollars. Some of them are really successful making their own games. They don't have to work for a big company like Blizzard or EA or something. They just make these small games and they put them out on the internet. Most PC games go through a service called Steam. If you're a gamer, a lot of games are bought through Steam. Um, but the algorithm is weird on Steam and there's all these little peculiarities to it and how and what type of game you should make. And that's what I write about. So I write a weekly blog uh, that looks at the marketplace. I'm a former UX designer. So I do a lot of like user research about what is the psychology of somebody who's an average gamer trying to buy games on Steam. So I followed people and I, I like, I paid them, of course, if it wasn't like <laughs> peeping Tom follow. Like I just said, hey, would you shop? And I just want to see why you pick one game versus the other. And I just looked at the psychology of why somebody buys one game or the other. And I look at sales trends and all kinds of stuff. And so I boil all these things down to a monthly or weekly report. Actually, I write a weekly blog all about games marketing and what the marketplace looks like. So that's howtomarketagame.com. And if you want to join my free newsletter, it's howtomarketagame.com slash free. And it's weird stuff that I write about, but it's all focused on how to sell a game 
and earn some money off of it. Some some developers do really, really, really well, and most do. Uh, it's okay, but um, it's a very exciting marketplace out there. And um, in general, with your tremendous overview of this, um, would you say that the market for independent games has been getting better over time and say in the last 10 years or getting more difficult? What What's what's your one sentence summary of the general temperature uh, and ambient atmosphere uh, of, of the independent games right now? Yeah, it is increasing in size, but it's also increasing in the amount of money you can earn. What that basically means is that you have to be more professional about how you do. It used to be, there's periods whenever a new platform comes online that anything, like when the iPhone first came out, you could put anything on the iPhone and it would do well. You could make millions of dollars selling that stuff. It's not the case anymore. So what you got to do is you got to go in smart and know kind of like what the marketplace wants. You have to have a high quality of game. You can't just quickly shoot something out and hope it it does well, you got to do it smart, but it is possible. And a lot of developers still make millions of dollars selling games on, I, I specialize in PC games, but th there's still an open marketplace for small developers if they do it smartly and they they really invest in high right. quality game. I, I'm not a, a gamer, so I, I don't purchase games. So I uh, thought so this is a very innocent question, but, but what is sort of like the, the, the channels of buying games these days. Um, I, I can imagine you, there are some games that are just apps that you download from the app stores. And then there's PC games. There's console games, which I guess you go to a, you buy on Amazon or you go to a game store. Um, what are the what are the general channels? Are, is there a lot of games that you're just downloading as a digital download these days? Or how does how's that break down? Yeah, for the independent market, it is entirely digital. Um, and Steam is where you're gonna make most of your money. Most developers make about 50% of their revenue off of Steam. And then if they port their games, they'll probably make, and when I say port, that means you just take the code and you change some things so that it can work on Xbox, PlayStation, and Switch. About 25% of their money will come from Switch. Kind of depends on the game, but that's in general. And then the, Xbox and PlayStation aren't too friendly to independent developers. Not, they just don't sell as well on those platforms. Mm -hmm. So um, that is kind of the makeup. Now, um, you could go mobile, but mobile has kind of turned itself inside out. And really, the only people making money on uh, mobile develop mobile apps like Apple or uh, you know um, Android are like big companies that can spend a lot of money advertising to bring in viewers. Um, so that is that market is pretty much unaccessible to most independent developers. The name of the game is either um, PC, which is Steam. It's almost synonymous with Steam, which is a digital download. You install a client and then you play it on your PC. Or it's on the Nintendo Switch, which is a portable console. For whatever reason, the people who play Switch games are very open to the experience of independent right, developers. Because right. the games are usually a little smaller, a little quirkier, but more artistically I don't know, kind of interesting than, right, um, right. you know, the main market games. Sure, sure. Um, remind me of who owns Steam? It is a non-publicly traded company. It's a private company that is Valve. Valve is the company. Valve, they okay. made the game yeah. a while ago called Half-Life. Right. Um, and they, they make Half-Life 2 and other things. But yes, Valve owns and operates Steam. Okay. Um, 
And do, and are you finding very much uptake in the VR direction of games these days? Is that still kind of not really a starter? Is it something that um, you feel is at the beginning of the excitement or is it already over? My assessment is it is a very niche market that has kind of, in my opinion, kind of reached its climax as far as for current innovation in the way it is now. Um, marketplaces like Metastore and I think there's a couple of, like a Vive, I think those stores actually do okay if you buy through Meta. Like if you put a game into Meta, it's a very curated experience. Like you have to apply with your game and then Meta, Facebook, will yeah. approve your game and say, yes, you are a good fit for the store. We're going to feature you. So the, the market is very small in those platforms. And so the games that get on there actually do okay. But on Steam in general, those games don't sell as well. So I, you know, if you're trying to market a game on Steam, you're, it's an uphill right, battle. Right. They don't usually do very well. Um, it's, there's maybe one or two games every year that break through and right. do very well on Steam. But I would say it's kind of a flat and niche market within the larger game market. Right. So um, again, I don't know the game industry at all, but one of the surprising things about the book publishing world is that you can have, you can get on bestseller lists with as few as you know 30,000 copies sold. And it's not like millions. It's, 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 I mean, some typical books that have some kind of reputation may only sell in the thousands. What are, what, what's kind of the, the I wouldn't call it the median, but what's, what's a typical good selling game, what kind of volume would that entail? Yeah, it's a very hockey stick shape to the market. And what is typical, I would say um, the, I actually, <laughs> if you want to see this, I actually have a site, howtomarketagame.com slash benchmarks for, for those who are interested, because I try and benchmark this stuff. Yeah. And so for sales, as far as the amount earned, I would say the median is about $5,000, which sounds $5, like ridiculous. $5,000, dollars okay. Dollars. Wow. Uh, an indie game typically sells around $10, like for $10 is how much an indie right, game right, is. Right, right, right. Now, a lot of people are just hobbyists. They just put their game up because they well, like to make games. Now, there are professionals, and what happens are, I would say at about, if I look at the Steam marketplace here, once you get to about the 97th, 98th percentile is when you start to make something that you could live off of. Like the games, maybe in the 100,000 to $300,000 total revenue, gross revenue. That's like the top 96th percentile of games. And then, and then it goes exponential from there. Like the 99th percentile, they make millions of dollars with their games. Hmm. And that's when I kind of, teach that's that's my that's my jam is i am trying to show developers what it takes to get to that last three to four percent where you start to make sustainable money that you could actually live right, off right right and so, the types yeah. of games and the scale of them sure so yeah i'm kind of one of the most popular things i wrote was about the thousand true fans theory and which says that um if you had a thousand true fans meaning they bought anything you produced and you were able to get $100 out of them for a year, like say you did 10 things a year, or you did not just 10 games, but maybe you sold their merchandise and you had 
the you know the packaging and there was uh, you know auxiliary stuff and you got ten dollars a hundred dollars for them and you needed only a thousand to have your livelihood it's not gonna be a fortune uh, do, do you could you point to very many people who you feel are in that kind of a thousand true fans range that are making a livelihood with 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 that approach is is, is that to you a viable um goal or is that just pie in the sky i for some reason games are weird i was really hoping that we could do it see the the problem with games is they are very 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 hard to make because they involve art code and design in, in this like perfect harmony and so the idea of making and most people only are willing to pay ten dollars for a game uh, that's kind of the upper cap for most games sometimes they get to 20 and so you get into this hard thing where a game will take a year to two years to develop, sometimes more, especially the really deep ones. And so you get into this weird, I don't know what to call it, but teeter-totter effect where it's like, well, I could spend more time on my game, but then I got to sell more units. Or if I get them out shorter time, like, I don't know. I know some very, <laughs> okay, there's a developer called Sock Pop, um, S-O-K-P-O-P. I think they're based out of the Netherlands. They try this technique it's a it's like a collective of four guys i think and they put out a game every month i don't they're very close to reaching your ideal but they even them and they're like industry famous for being the fastest developers they cannot produce ten dollars worth of game 10 games a year and the scale and scope that they're able to produce can only produce a game that the market will accept that's about five dollars so for whatever reasons, the game industry is very tight being able to do that. So what most developers have to do is kind of go for the, go for the big and go one game every two years and then try and get promoted because Steam is a closed garden. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. what do they call it, gated garden or something. And if you can show that you can make probably around $300,000, they, they, they boost you all the way to the top of the marketplace and then you make a million. So it's really a hit driven industry where it's like you either make maybe $50,000 or like a million dollars. There's like this real thing. So unfortunately, I, I wish it was true. I originally went into this industry thinking that I could Kevin Kelly 1000 true fans. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if you can do it in games. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't know. Nobody's cracked it at least. Well, I, 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 again, I'm speaking in really deep ignorance about the gaming world as a player or creator. I just don't have any experience, but I wonder if these new AI generative tools, um, which allow people to script and to create visuals and to create very, very detailed um, worlds, whether that might change that dynamic where, making a game is no longer a two-year project, but maybe a two-month project. And so um, what, do you, what, what do you feel about that? I think that is one of the main limiting factors is just the, the amount of content that you have to make for a game right, right. Is, is astronomical. So it could be that um, you could generate that stuff. The, the big question that I have, which is an unsolved tech problem, I would say, is you could, and there are um, companies that make, you know, you could make a beautiful environment that's full of like detritus. You know, that's the whole thing with AI is like, nobody need, no human should be there placing every Coke can in a back alley and every Perfect. brick that pops out. So you can make an AI that just makes this beautiful lived in looking environment. The problem with games 
is what we call the door problem, where it's like everything has to be interactable. So it's like, then you got to kind of, then you get to the part where you're chasing it. where like, okay, do we code? What happens if somebody picks up a can, a soda can and throws uh-huh. it at like a cat that's standing there? It's like, right. then does that mean the coders now have to code all this stuff? Or can we get IEI to do that? Or is, you know, is it a problem where we're always pushing ahead where every, even though the fidelity of the game pushes, does the design and the coding keep up with that? That is beyond my pay grade. I don't know if I'm smart enough to figure that out or predict it, but I would imagine that's going to be the next bottleneck is, yes, you could generate all the art, but could you generate the interaction and the second order effects of what comes from that? The the game, the gameplay. Yeah. So um, that's a great thing. So listeners out there, if you're young and want to know where to put your energies in the new frontier, figure that out. Figure out how you could use AI to accelerate the design of the of the play in a game. You'll be you'll be sweet. So, um, Chris, this has really been wonderful, and thank you for indulging me in my questions about the game world. Um, I think games are highly underrated as a cultural influence. I mean, you just look at the number of hours that people are putting it. That has to have, uh, you know, it has to be accounted uh, for in a much more sensible way than we are. Um, it's, in, but what we also know is that all the kind of, you know, vernacular arts become the high arts in a generation. And so um, there's, there's that revenge, I would say, of the gamers will get the, well, as the comic books, when I was growing up, comic books were disposable and they were trash. And now they are the center of billion dollar industries. So um, yeah, anyway, I, I enjoyed um talking with you about this. Thank you for your cool tool suggestions. They were really fantastic. You did a great job in presenting them and, um, and good and good stuff too. So thank you. Great talking to you, Kevin. Thank you so much. This year, our cool tools blog will be 20 years old, which means we've been posting something new every day for 20 years. It's only possible because of the very engaged and knowledgeable readers and listeners like yourself. You've kept this place going, and we are very grateful for you. With this idea of 20 years in mind, um, we decided to try an experiment this year, and I'm inviting our guests and listeners to join me on our Cool Tool Show and Tell, which is the program that you're listening to right now. So if you feel you'd make a good guest on this podcast, and have four uncommon tools that you'd like to share with us, um, please sign up on our form on the website, and we'll see about inviting you. You must be comfortable taking all, talking on a video, and um, you need to have some tools that you can show. Um, we record on, as you know, on Zoom. We do a YouTube version, a visual video version of it, as well as an audible version. Fill out the form if you're interested and um, list your four, four cool tools, and we'll see if there's a good fit. The applications aren't guaranteed in any way, um, and we're looking at tools that are new to us and appropriate tools and um, whether the times will work for you. So um, we're really interested in hearing from people all over the world, not just in the U.S., although the tools have to be available online, easily available online. And um, if you are a longtime listener, you kind of know what 
the definition of our tools are they're very broad. They can be anything that's handy from something in the kitchen to something you use to travel to a workshop to something professional that we may not know about. We're really interested in things that we don't know anything about. So um, this is an open invitation. We'll give it a try. If you think you make a good guess for this podcast, um, fill out the form. There'll be a link somewhere on our website. Um, and we look forward to, to chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you.